Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dikitria, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Sun Life Financial Q2 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. The host of the call is Lee Chalmers, Senior Vice President, Head of Investor Relations and Capital Management. Please go ahead, Ms. Chalmers. Thank you, Dikitria, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sun Life Financial's earnings conference call for the second quarter of 2020. Our earnings release and the slides for today's call are available on the Investor Relations section of our website at sunlifefinancial.com. We will begin today's presentation with an overview of our second quarter results by Dean Connor, President and Chief Executive Officer of Sun Life Financial. Following Dean's remarks, Kevin Strain, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, will present the financial results for the quarter. After the prepared remarks, we will move to the question and answer portion of the call. Other members of management will also be available to answer your questions on today's call. Turning to slide two, I draw your attention to the cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements and non-IFRS financial measures, which form part of today's remarks. As noted in the slides, forward-looking statements may be rendered inaccurate by subsequent events. And with that, I'll now turn things over to Dean. Thanks, Lee, and good morning, everyone. As communities around the world continue to grapple with the health and economic impacts of COVID-19, our thoughts go out to the many people whose lives continue to be affected. In the midst of that, Sun Life is continuing to help our clients, employees, advisors, and communities navigate their way through these times, and that sense of shared purpose is stronger than ever. This quarter, we've also had many important conversations across Sun Life about underrepresented communities, including Blacks, Indigenous, and people of color. We know that building diverse teams, creating an inclusive environment free of racial discrimination and providing a sense of belonging are all keys to our success. And we have committed to an action plan. It will take time, but I have high confidence in the ability of people at Sun Life to make this happen. Turning to slide four, during this past quarter, we continued on our relentless journey of putting clients at the center of everything we do. In Asia, we further advanced our digital capabilities rolling out new virtual sales experiences in Hong Kong, Indonesia, India, and the Philippines. Clients don't have to leave their homes in order to connect with their Sun Life advisor. Instead, they can transact safely from application submission to digital signing without using paper or meeting face-to-face. -face. At this year's Asia Trusted Life Agents and Advisors Awards, I'm really pleased to report that we won three awards, all won by our team in Hong Kong, including Insurance Company of the Year. During the quarter, we received an insurance license from the Monetary Authority of Singapore 
which will enable us to provide life insurance solutions to help high net worth clients grow, protect, and transfer their wealth to the next generation. This now expands our presence to eight markets in Asia, and we expect to begin our Singapore operations early next year. In the second quarter, 85% of individual life insurance applications in Canada were processed without the need for lab tests, supported by the introduction of accelerated underwriting last fall and special accommodations for COVID-19. We also launched the Sun eApp, which helps clients and their third-party advisors through the process of applying for life and critical illness insurance digitally, a faster process with clients receiving a decision in as little as 24 hours. In Q1, using our Lumino Health platform, we rolled out virtual healthcare from Dialog, Canada's leading telemedicine provider to Sun Life Group plan members across Canada. And then last week, we announced a strategic partnership and $33 million equity investment in Dialog. It's one more example of innovation in a rapidly changing healthcare landscape that supports our purpose of helping clients live healthier lives. Our group retirement services business in Canada invests over $100 billion of assets in retirement savings for 1.4 million Canadians who are members of a workplace pension or savings plan. And in the quarter, we launched a new ESG framework that helps those clients identify the investment firms that are ESG leaders in every major asset category offered on our platform. We know that a strong focus on ESG by investment managers often means superior investment performance. In the US, we made it easier to work with us virtually by temporarily waiving the platform fee for employers on our advanced Maxwell Health digital benefits platform. In addition, we launched several new capabilities, including enhanced mobile enrollment, text messaging and live chat features, and additional integration for employee payroll deductions. We also added other virtual options to enroll members for Sun Life benefits including one-on-one or group enrollment meetings to help ensure they can easily choose their benefits at any time on any device. These investments in digital are making a difference in winning new business as technology becomes a bigger decision driver for employers and their brokers and advisors. Also in the U.S., our new disability administration system, SunWorks, is hitting its stride with 3,500 clients now on the platform with really positive client feedback. Turning to slide five, reported net income of 519 million was down 13% from the second quarter of 2019, reflecting lower interest rates and credit spreads with a partial offset from equity market gains in the second quarter. While the economic impact of COVID-19 increased credit charges, and we had a higher effective tax rate on underlying earnings in the quarter, underlying net income remained level with prior year at 739 million, in part reflecting good underlying business growth as evidenced by the 11% growth in expected profit. We generated an underlying return on equity of 13.4% for the quarter. The LICAT ratio at SLF increased to 146%, a strong level that's well in excess of the supervisory minimum, At Sun Life Assurance, our LICAT ratio ended the quarter at 126%, a decrease from the prior quarter, which was primarily driven by a scenario switch in the LICAT calculation and the subsequent change in market sensitivities for credit spreads. And Kevin will expand on this when he takes us through the results in a minute. 
Our strong capital and cash position remain healthy, and along with a low leverage ratio of 23.2%, it provides both flexibility for an opportunity for capital deployment. Credit downgrades and impairments amounted to a $58 million charge to earnings for the quarter. Our high-quality, well-diversified investment portfolio includes a variety of investment types spread across a broad range of sectors and geographies, and we've been actively repositioning the portfolio over the past several years in preparation for an economic downturn. Insurance sales were down 6% from the prior year, reflecting lockdowns due to the pandemic, but better than the minus 20% we mentioned on the Q1 call as what we had been seeing in April. Wealth and asset management sales grew 53% over prior year, a very strong result fueled by MFS and SLC management. We were particularly pleased to see MFS net inflows of US 5.4 billion, including positive flows from US retail products for the sixth consecutive quarter. VNB, which covers our insurance and wealth businesses, ex-asset management, was down 12% on lower sales volumes, offset partly by better mix. We also completed the acquisition of a majority stake in Infrared Capital Partners on July 1st. As a leader in global infrastructure investing, including renewable energy, Infrared will broaden SLC management's suite of alternative investment solutions, while also creating the opportunity for Infrared to access North American investors through our distribution networks. This brings SLC management's assets under management at June 30th to over $100 billion on a pro forma basis. COVID-19 has created much economic uncertainty, but we remain confident in our business mix, our financial strength, and our ability to execute well through these complex times. Our digital investments have served us well in the early stages of the pandemic, making it easy for clients and advisors to virtually access advice and solutions. Over the coming quarters, we will accelerate our digital investments to drive even greater ease of doing business for clients and to build on our business momentum. And with that, I'll now turn the call over to Kevin Strain, who will take us through the results. Thanks, Dean, and good morning, everyone. Turning to slide seven, our reported net income for the quarter was $519 million, down 13% when compared to the same period a year ago. The drop in reported income was primarily from unfavorable market-related impacts resulting from COVID-19, specifically lower interest rates, narrowing credit spreads, and changes in the fair value of investment properties partially offset by equity market impacts as markets rebounded from the lows we saw in the first quarter. Positive equity market impacts also included basis risk, primarily on our Canadian segregated funds, which was negative this quarter, and the impact of lower valuations on private equities. Underlying net income of $739 million and earnings per share of $1.26 remained level with Q2 2019. Our underlying results this quarter versus prior year were driven by strong growth and expected profit, investing activity gains, favorable morbidity experience, and higher net investment returns on surplus, offset by unfavorable tax impacts on adjustments relating to the prior year's Canadian tax filings of approximately $50 million and lower tax-exempt investment income, unfavorable credit experience of $58 million in the quarter, primarily driven by downgrades and unfavorable expense experience from, from lower expense recoveries in our Canadian Group Benefits Administration's business. Our underlying return on equity for the quarter was 13.4% within our medium-term objective of 12 to 14%. Assets under management grew by nearly $100 billion in the quarter. 
to over $1.1 trillion, driven by the strong recovery in equity markets and the overall net inflows, partially offset by foreign exchange impacts. Book value per share of $37.56 increased by 4% over the prior year, reflecting reported net income and foreign exchange gains in other comprehensive income over the last 12 months. Our capital position remains strong at 146% LICAT at SLF and 126% LICAT at SLA. Our strong capital position gives us flexibility for investments in organic and M&A growth, as well as protecting us against economic volatility. Reduction in the SLA LICAT ratio from the prior quarter reflects the impact of a scenario switch in the LICAT calculation. As we switched scenarios in Q2, we saw approximately a one percentage point reduction from the shifting coming through this quarter with a further three percentage points to come through over the next five quarters, assuming we remain on the new scenario. In addition, under the new interest scenario, narrowing of credit spreads now result in a lower LICAT ratio, and this amounted to a two percentage point reduction in the SLA LICAT ratio in the quarter. SLF's LICAT ratio experienced similar impacts but increased quarter over quarter to 146% due to the $1 billion subordinated debt offering in May, which added five percentage points to the SLF LICAT ratio. Our cash at SLF remains strong at $3.5 billion, and our financial leverage at 23.2% remains below our target of 25% at the end of Q2, both reflecting the $1 billion debt offering in May. Since quarter end, we completed the acquisition of Infrared, which reduced our cash position by approximately $510 million and our SLF LICAT ratio by 2.5%. Subject to regulatory approval, we also anticipate redeeming $500 million of subordinated debt callable in September, which will further reduce our cash balance um, and our SLF LICAT ratio by a further 2.5% and reduce our financial leverage ratio by 1.3%. Pro forma, these two transactions the SLF LICAT ratio would be 141% and leverage would be 21.9%. The SLA LICAT ratio will not be affected as these transactions are funded solely from SLF. No buybacks were completed during the quarter following OSFI's request in March that all federally regulated financial institutions in Canada halt share buybacks and dividend increases. As a result, our normal course issuer bid will expire on August 13th and we will wait until OSFI's halt is lifted before revisiting our share buyback program. Slide eight shows business group performance on a reported and underlying net income basis. In Canada, reported net income was down 21%, driven by unfavorable market-related impacts, primarily reflecting lower interest rates and corporate spreads, partially offset by equity market growth. On an underlying basis, Canada delivered underlying net income that was 16% higher than the same period in 2019 driven by higher investing activity and strong growth in expected profit, partially offset by credit experience and unfavorable results in group benefits. The unfavorable results in group benefits reflected continued long-term disability experience as a result of rising mental health claims and lower transaction fees in our group administration services business from lower dental and extended health care claims. This was partially offset by the favorable impact of lower dental and paramedical claims in our fully insured block of business. Reported net income in the U.S. increased by 23% in U.S. dollars against the same period last year, reflecting improved market-related impacts and lower integration costs following the completion of the integration relating to the assurance acquisition at the end of last year. U.S. underlying net income increased by 11% in U.S. dollars, driven by business growth. 
a gain from the conclusion of a legal matter, and a favorable morbidity experience in group benefits partially offset by unfavorable mortality and credit experience. In our asset management businesses, we saw reported earnings that were slightly lower than the prior year, driven by unfavorable fair value adjustments on MFS share-based payment awards and costs related to accretion of the put liability on the acquisition of Bentall Green Oak. On an underlying basis, asset management earnings driven or increased by 6%, driven by an increase in performance fees at SLC and the contribution from BGO partially offset by higher sales expenses in MFS. Asia's reported net income was $8 million, lower year over year, primarily due to the impact of narrowing credit spreads in the quarter. Underlying net income for Asia decreased by $3 million due to unfavorable credit experience and lower AFS gains, largely offset by a gain from a mortgage investment prepayment and favorable morbidity experience. Our corporate segment, which includes the UK runoff business, was down $62 million in underlying net income compared to Q2 2019. The decline was primarily due to an unfavorable adjustment relating to the prior year's Canadian tax filings and lower tax-exempt investment income in Canada, partially offset by higher net investment returns on surplus of $23 million, predominantly from seed investment gains, where we recovered our losses from the prior quarter related to credit spreads. In the UK, we had unfavorable credit experience offset by higher investing activity and favorable mortality experience in the annuity business. Slide nine provides an overview of our sources of earnings. Despite the challenging environment, expected profit increased 11% compared to Q2 2019, driven by widespread growth. Asia grew modestly, Canada grew 12%, the US grew 23%, and our asset management businesses grew 10%, driven by SLC management's acquisition of Bentall Green Oak. New business strain of negative $5 million in the quarter was in line with the same period a year ago and was mostly impacted by lower sales as a result of COVID-19, offset by strong sales in, in international hubs in Asia and repricing of individual insurance products in Canada. Experience losses of $403 million pre-tax were largely driven by unfavorable market-related impacts of $432 million pre-tax, primarily relating to the impact of falling interest rates, in particular at the longer end of the yield curve in Canada, the narrowing of credit spreads, and impacts of appraised values for investment properties, partially offset by the rise in equity markets during Q2. Other experience items, which we have called other notable items, impacted both reported and underlying earnings and were $29 million pre-tax as strong investing activity results offset credit experience. Credit experience was negative $72 million pre-tax, reflecting the impact of downgrades and impairments in our fixed income portfolio. In addition to our quarterly loan review process, we increased our focus on areas where we saw potential for higher, yield, higher levels of rating migrations, given the impact of the pandemic and the current economic environment. This included those sectors that we highlighted in our MDNA this quarter. We had small impact from assumption changes in management actions during the quarter of $3 million. Other of negative $52 million in our source of earnings includes acquisition and integration costs relating to acquisitions in SLC management and fair value adjustments on share-based payment awards at MFS. Earnings on surplus increased year over year, primarily driven by gains on seed investments as a result of narrowing credit spreads and higher AFS gains, offset by market losses on real estate investments. Our effective tax rate on a reported basis was 8.6%, 
reflecting tax-exempt investment income within market-related impacts, which was partially offset by an unfavorable adjustment relating to the prior year's Canadian tax filings. The latter adjustment also impacted our effective tax rate on an underlying basis, which was 26.1%, above our expected range of 15 to 20%. Slide 10 shows sales results by business group for the quarter. While COVID-19 had an impact across many of our businesses, we saw resilience in a number of channels as we pivoted to digital tools and solutions to meet client needs. In the U.S., insurance sales in the second quarter of 2020 were in line with the same period in 2019 on a constant currency basis, reflecting strong performance across all businesses in a challenging environment. In Asia, insurance sales were also in line year over year on a constant currency basis, despite many of the countries in which we operate remaining in lockdown for most of the quarter. We had strong performance in our high net worth businesses in international hubs, as well as higher sales in China and Vietnam. This was mostly offset by lower sales in those markets that experienced more severe lockdowns like the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, and India. In Canada, fewer group clients coming to market along with lower individual insurance sales, primarily in the third-party high net worth channel, reduced sales by 22% year over year. Well, sales increased by $19.7 billion or 53% over the prior year. While Canada saw sales decrease by 20% due to lower sales in group retirement services and individual wealth, this was more than offset by a 36% increase in Asia wealth sales and a 56% increase in asset management sales, both on a constant currency basis. Asia wealth sales were driven by fixed income sales in India and money market sales in the Philippines, while asset management sales were driven by higher mutual fund and managed fund sales in MFS and higher sales in SLC management. MFS saw positive flows of U.S. $5.4 billion this quarter driven by retail, making Q2 the sixth successive quarter of positive retail flows. Institutional flows were slightly negative, driven by client rebalancing. Value of new business was $206 million in Q2, a decrease of 12% year-over-year, largely driven by lower sales in Canada and Asia due to the impact of COVID-19, partially offset by favorable product mix in Canada individual insurance and international hubs. Moving to slide 11, operating expenses for the first half of the year increased 3% on a constant currency basis over the same period last year. Controllable expenses are up a modest 2%, reflecting savings from lower discretionary spend like travel and conference-related costs due to COVID-19, partially offset by continued investment in digital initiatives across the company. As we continue to work through the impact of COVID-19, we want to give you a view into what July looks like for sales, claims, and other items impacted by the pandemic. In the month of July, sales across our products and businesses were mixed, with total individual insurance sales at approximately 95% of the levels in July of 2019, and wealth sales at 110% of July 2019 levels. For group benefits, July premium volumes and business in force were relatively unchanged from the end of the second quarter. In July, our mortality and morbidity claims experience from COVID-19 has been small, amounting to less than 5% of our monthly average for mortality and disability claims paid. With Canada and the U.S. gradually reopening businesses and services, health and dental benefit claims have increased compared to the monthly average of the second quarter. However, we're still below historical levels. For our borrowers and real estate tenants, we have granted interest, principal, and rent payment deferrals on a case-by-case basis 
with the majority of the deferrals being up to three months. During the second quarter, we collected 99% of our expected investment-related cash inflows. Outstanding deferrals, as at the end of July, were just less than $40 million, with additional requests currently under assessment. To conclude, COVID-19 and associated economic conditions continue to present challenges, but we remain well-positioned with strong capital and liquidity, supported by a low financial leverage ratio, strong LICAT ratios, and excess cash of $2.5 billion after taking into account the infrared acquisition and our anticipated debt redemption in September. Our strong risk management, strong balance sheet, diversified and de-risk business mix, and innovative digital solutions and capabilities that support our clients and advisors all contribute to our strong positioning in continuing to manage through these turbulent times. With that, I'll turn the call back to Lee for the Q&A portion of the call. Thank you, Kevin. To help ensure that all of our participants have an opportunity to ask questions on today's call, I ask that each of you please limit yourself to one or two questions and then to requeue with any additional questions. With that, I'll now ask Dikitra to please poll the participants for questions. Thank you. Your first question comes from Gabriel Deshane with National Bank Financial. Hi, good morning. My uh, first question for Jacques and, and Dan, I guess, um, you know, the group business, uh, you know, we talk, spent a lot of time talking about claims. I want to get a sense for the uh, revenue or premium outlook over the next 12, 24, maybe 12 months um, that, you, that you have for the business, considering, you know, the trend in unemployment and, and maybe even business decisions, like some employers may choose to, you know, cut coverage to offset the premium increases you're, you're probably going to be putting through? Kevin, should I go first? Yeah, Jacques, why don't we Is start I... with you and then, and then move to Dan. Yeah, Gabriel, good morning. Thank you for your question. It's, uh, you point to a bunch of uh, good factors there, and employment levels is something we've been watching. Interestingly, I have to say, Gabriel, we, we haven't seen much of an impact so far. Uh, there have been layoffs in many cases, temporary, so benefit coverage has not necessarily stopped. The other issue is looking at uh, the segmentation of clients. As you know, in our Canadian business, we would have a larger proportion of large national accounts. I think there's been more stability in that part of the, uh, the economy. So sectors of the economy, of course, also have an impact. We also have what I would describe as mitigating factors. So as you know, in our group businesses, uh, when people terminate, they can roll over into individual products. So that sort of plays a bit of an offsetting uh, impact. So, so at a macro level, all the things you say are things that we also think about and are watching. We haven't really seen that much of an impact, of course, the trajectory of the disease and the impact on the economy going forward is, is going to have to be watched carefully. But as I said so far, not that much of an impact. And this is Dan Fishbein. Let me uh, add on for the U.S. Uh, to date, like Jacques is describing, we have not seen uh, much impact. Uh, you know, premiums, revenues have stayed fairly close to where we would have expected them to be. Uh, we have been watching that very closely. We did give uh, extended grace periods during the second quarter, 
those have now largely ended, and we have seen clients uh, make the payments for any anything that was deferred under those uh, grace periods. So our premium receipts are right about where they would have been uh, without the pandemic. Uh, we think what's happening to some degree is that the CARES Act in the U.S., the government support, has been very effective. You uh, combine that with the fact that uh, it's clear that our clients value the, these benefits and want to keep providing them to people. Even those who have furloughed workers have continued paying for benefits during those furlough periods. And certainly the government supports have been very helpful in that regard. We're obviously watching very carefully uh, what's going on in Washington right now with potential extension of those kinds of supports. Uh, that will right. certainly be important uh, to us. You know, but with that said, uh, as we get into more structural layoffs versus furloughs, uh, we have to keep watching that because that could, you know, create a different dynamic uh, in the coming months. And the final comment I'll make, like Jacques, our mix is somewhat favorable. We've, you know, measured that and evaluated that very carefully. And the industries we serve are somewhat more resilient in this economy than the economy as a whole. Thanks for uh, both responses there. My next question, and it's a bit more morbid, uh, but uh, a core one to uh, the life insurance business and, and mortality. And I guess there's, you know, a few mortality uh, uh, or some negative mortality experience this quarter. I, I get where that's coming from. I'm, I'm more um, curious, though, about your your longer-term outlook. And maybe, Kevin, for you, um, you know, there's some – direct impact from COVID than indirect, you know, economic, uh, you know, downturns are, are, you know, lead to health issues and, and mortality rates moving higher. Um, and if it lasts a long time, then that, that could be a secular trend. Just wondering how you think your business is positioned for potentially higher mortality rates over the next few years. Uh, you are long or short mortality, I should say. But, uh, you know, then the individual product mix uh, and the insured population also plays a role here. Uh, Gabe, I'm going to suggest that Kevin Morrissey start with uh, some of the answer to this question, and then we can pass it to the business group presidents if there's additional color data. Because it is different Thanks. by, as you noted, it's a little bit different by country and by market. Yes, Gabriel, it's Kevin Morrissey. Thanks for that question. I think when we're, we're thinking about the impacts of mortality, it's important for some life to step back and look at the different types of diversification and risk mitigation that we've had. So, so far what we've experienced as a result of COVID-19, we've seen significant product diversification. As you're aware, we have both life insurance and annuity products. And so we are seeing some of that offsetting of risks. We're also benefiting so far from geographic diversification. So to date, the pandemic has been more severe in the US and the UK and, and less severe in Canada and the Asian countries where we operate. We're also seeing significant risk mitigation for the impacts on the insured population versus the general population. And so across those three dimensions, we're, we're seeing some significant risk mitigation. Also, I would highlight we have significant use of reinsurance across a number, a number of our blocks. So when we're looking across all of our businesses, you know, we have the, the experience to date uh, we have had uh, 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 some significant diversification, and that that uh, uh, has, has helped us so far in uh, what we've seen in our experience. Longer term, I guess it's tough to say about 
the trajectory of, of what it will do um, for mortality. I think you know we're still very early days in the pandemic, uh, and I think it's tough to draw conclusions around longer term where this will go. So I think that at this point I'll probably reserve opinion. Uh, we are closely monitoring it, both our experience and industry experience, and uh, we'll have to. I think uh, time will tell longer longer term, but at this stage, a, a little early to make conclusions. Gabe, it's uh, Dean, and uh, I don't. I get that was a great answer, Kevin. I don't think we need to go by by geography. The only thing I would add to it is a significant um, part of our mortality exposure is in our group businesses in Canada and the United States, uh, where we have the ability to reprice, as you know. So, to the extent that that trends uh, over the longer period turn negative on mortality, we can we can catch that up in relatively quick order through pricing. Thanks. Thanks for that. And your next question comes from the line of Steve Cario with 8 Capital. <clears throat> Thanks very much. If I could start with a question on Asia, likely for Leo. Uh, Leo, on the sales front, Hong Kong is coming through the pandemic very well in terms of in terms of top line in sales, uh, but more volatility in, in the local markets. You know, Kevin gave a view from the top of the house and things are changing pretty swiftly in terms of additional waves. But to the extent possible, can you give us a bit of an update on what you're seeing sort of early Q3 and maybe help us, you know, if you could point to geographies where your outlook's getting, you know, better or worse, that would be helpful in terms of how we think of the second half of the year. Okay. Uh, good morning, Steve. Thank you for the question. Um, so, you know, if you look at uh, our sales uh, in Q2, maybe I'll start with, uh, with momentum. Um, if you recall um, our Q1 analyst call, uh, we um, uh, shared sales for the month of April at 80% of prior year. We ended up the quarter uh, basically flat to prior year. So uh, that tells you a little bit about the momentum through the, the quarter, which uh, we feel quite good about. Now, as you mentioned, um, the, the, the trends are a little bit different market to market. So you talked about um, international hubs, uh, that's our international business in Hong Kong being quite strong uh, in Q2. We also had strong results in, um, uh, in China and in Vietnam, um, uh, whereas uh, markets like um, uh, Indonesia, uh, Philippines, um, Malaysia were, were quite a bit weaker. I think you can link that quite directly to what's happening in terms of uh, COVID-19 measures in these different markets. Um, the Southeast Asian countries had um, much uh, more severe uh, levels of COVID-19 cases and therefore uh, much more severe uh, social distancing measures throughout the quarter. Um, now, despite all of that, uh, I talked about the momentum uh, across the region. You know, you can assign that uh, in part to some of the relaxation of social distancing uh, in, uh, in Southeast Asia, but also to uh, a lot of the capabilities that we deployed to all of our markets um, um, in, uh, in Q2, um, where we equipped our advisors with a number of new digital capabilities to allow them to interact with um, their, um, uh, their clients uh, non-face-to-face. And to give you a bit of a sense of, of what that means, for example, if you take the Philippines, in the month of June, 75% of our applications were submitted via digital remote uh, capabilities. 
Um, we've also seen quite a bit of uh, you know, new creative and, and productive uh, activities being rolled out across the region. So for example, um, one of the ways our advisors operate is that they create uh, client seminars and we typically bring 100 clients together in a conference room and have an educational seminar. Uh, in the middle of the crisis, we moved all of that to webinars online and we're having attendance of several thousand uh, clients joining these, uh, these digital venues. So all of that is, is fueling good momentum, uh, which is offsetting some of the, the headwinds related to social distancing measures. Um, so we, um, we see that momentum uh, across the region. And then, of course, at the same time, we do see uh, quite a bit of uncertainty uh, into Q3. Uh, as you would have seen, Vietnam and Hong Kong have had a resurgence of COVID-19 cases. Uh, Hong Kong is going through its toughest uh, wave of social distancing measures uh, so far in the last six months. Um, and so that's definitely a, a headwind. Uh, the Philippines announced a new set of uh, social distancing and quarantine measures uh, earlier this week. So that's also going to obviously be, be a headwind. Um, but uh, we're, we're, we're cautiously optimistic in terms of the, the momentum uh, of our business, uh, all of these headwinds notwithstanding. Can, can you give a sense, you, last quarter you mentioned how April was 80% of, of prior year. Can you, does that, can you roll that up into something in terms of July? So it's it's Kevin Steve. Yeah. We 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 yeah. gave the disclosure for total company at, at 95%, but we weren't going to break it up by business group. You can you can imagine that it's a, you know that's pretty current information. We just ended July a few few days ago, and and so we're trying to give keep that at the the total company level. But maybe Leo could talk a little bit more kind of trends in the quarter, which I think he's sort of addressed by uh, the, the the nature of what's happening. Yeah, I think uh, what uh, you describe at a global level, Kevin, is uh, you know quite in line in terms of momentum. April versus versus July, uh, the the trends would be similar uh, in the context of uh, of Asia. Okay, thanks for that. And just if I could, uh, second question, uh, going to MFS, and, and thanks, Leo. Um, I wanted to ask about the institutional business. You know, you had been running at five or six million of quarterly. Uh, gross sales for a stretch of time there, uh, but uh, the last couple of quarters that's jumped to the $10 billion range through a difficult Q1 and a and what was a better Q2. Uh, so, so Mike, are you are you seeing indications that you're turning the quarter after a more challenging period for the institutional side, and maybe a bit of color on what's resonating with the institutional client base? Is it is it as simple as performance, or is there some better uptake in in some of the initiatives you've been working on for the last uh, year or two? Yeah, good morning, Steve. This is Mike. Um, yeah, I would just say the, the work that we've been doing to uh, continue to broaden um, the opportunities set around the world by client. Um, what's interesting, I think, with MFS relative probably to what you're seeing broadly in the active marketplace is, is much of what we've been distributing institutionally has been equities. And so we are winning on the equity platform. Um, and, and I would also say from a product perspective is, you know, we did see – uh, uh, several years of redemptions in the institutional channel. There have been some strategies where, that were capacity constrained that we've reopened, um, and we've seen some interest in those as well. And so I think there are a number of things that we're doing um, in terms of prospecting, engaging with clients, cross-selling to existing clients. Um, and I do believe the investment 
platform, um, the consistency of the performance and risk management um, has resonated around the world, and, and we're seeing a lot of interest in a variety of products across the platform. Okay, thanks for that color. I'll leave it there. Your next question comes from the line of David Montemaden with Evacor. Thanks. Good morning. Um, just a, a question for Leo, and specifically in, in uh, the international hub sales. Uh, you know, that was a very strong result. Um, maybe you can give some color in terms of what was driving that, and and what region specifically was driving that. Because my understanding was it was a lot of Hong Kong driving the international high net worth sales, and I would think that those require more of a face-to-face -face meeting to to close. So just wondering if I could get a bit more color on, on what was driving that during the quarter. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the question, David. Uh, in terms of uh, international hub sales, um, there's really you know, two factors that I would um, uh, point you to. The first one is our strategic focus on the high net worth segment over the past few years. And then the second one is more of a technical aspect of the, the, the sales cycle of the high net worth products. Right? So on, on the first point of, um, of strategic focus, we've, um, you know, we've made high net worth one of our key strategic priorities in Asia over the past uh, few years. Uh, as you will remember, we brought International into the Asia Business Group in 2018. Uh, given its natural alignment uh, with the Asian market. Then we launched um, our high net worth business in Hong Kong onshore in 2018 as well. And then more recently in uh, Q1 of 2020, we brought these operations together under one roof as international hubs. And through that process, uh, we've really strengthened our product suites. We've uh, enhanced our technology capabilities to support uh, brokers and distribution partners and we've deepened our relationships with banks and, and international brokers significantly. And so one of the things you're seeing in the momentum of these sales is um, those efforts paying off. And then the second thing that you're seeing that's um, a little bit uh, staggered to maybe other markets given COVID-19 is that you know, it can take six to 12 months uh, for the sales cycle of a high net worth sale. And so some of the high net worth sales we saw in Q1 and Q2 of this year are really uh, from our pipeline uh, generated in 2019. And so we're, we're really benefiting right now from the momentum we uh, generated in 2019. Got it, thanks. If I could just follow up, um, is, is, is there a lot of mainland Chinese visitors um, in, that, in that high net worth business in, in Hong Kong? Is that a big component of the, of the sales? No, it's a, it's a very small part of the sales at the, at the current time, uh, and it's always been a small part of, uh, of our business in general. So it's, okay. Hong, Kong, and, it's Hong Kong, and it's, um, it's uh, uh, the rest of Asia, really. Got it. Okay. Thanks. And then just a bigger, bigger, uh, bigger picture question for Dean. Um, just wanted to get your insight into what happened in, in Hong Kong with the Security Act and how that impacts how you're thinking about growth in the country and uh, potential M&A there. Yeah, thanks, David. You know, the, the national security law um, is uh, clearly a, uh, it's an important development that we've been studying and comparing notes with other financial institutions. 
in the region. I think it's too soon to say uh, what impact. We, we understand the background, the rationale, and the different points of view on it. I think for our business, for the industry, it's too soon to say. Uh, for the time being, it feels like business as usual in the sense that, um, you know, businesses, um, the access to capital, the access to uh, courts, the access to um, uh, talent, all of those things that cause us to want to, for the last, you know, 125 years, want to be in Hong Kong, all of those continue. And, you know, I think the, the question that we'll, we'll watch closely, and I know others are watching closely, is to what extent will that change? For the time being, you know, we continue to see access to strong talent. Uh, we've got a great team in Hong Kong, both in our local business and in the regional office, and um, we think that will continue uh, for some time. But it's, um, in some ways, I think it's too soon to say um, whether, whether or not it will have a significant impact on business. Great, thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Mini Rauman with Scotia Bank. Hi, good morning. Just a question on, on m and I'm wondering if COVID has changed how you view M&A right now, just in terms of you know, potential to be more opportunistic, if you're seeing anything. And then specifically, I know you mentioned um, the investment in dialogue. That was very small, but I'm wondering larger um, uh, you know, in larger terms, uh, your perspective on tech investments and, and potential to deploy in large tech investments, has your appetite for that changed? And do you see any platforms out there, companies that would potentially make sense? Yeah, thanks, Manny. It's Dean. Um, so we, we continue to be uh, in the mix in discussions on M&A. As Kevin noted and as I've noted and as we've talked about before, we have a balance sheet and a, a cash and capital position, leverage position that I think uh, puts us in, in a good place in terms of considering M&A opportunities. Um, we don't have to do M&A. We, we have good organic growth opportunities uh, as, as you see coming through uh, this, these quarterly earnings results. As we look at opportunities, um, one of the additional lenses that we will apply, given we're in the middle of a pretty significant uh, you know, event with COVID and the economic impact, is we will apply an additional stress scenario. So you know, if we end up with a severe stress scenario as one of our tail events coming out of this, you know, we want to make sure our capital position remains strong. So that's just an additional lens that we would apply to anything that we look at. Specific to tech investments, you've seen us make some investments in, in tech businesses like uh, Maxwell Health, now, now Dialogue, uh, that provide additional capability that we can integrate to the benefit of our clients, for the benefit of our clients. And you know we're seeing that with Maxwell Health in the U.S. It is making a difference in winning business and getting more lines of coverage in place when we take employees through an employer through a Maxwell Health enrollment process. And similarly, you know, it's quite remarkable, Jacques and his team in Canada have signed up, there's over half a million Canadians who now have access to Dialogue virtual healthcare coverage just in the last quarter, 
because we pushed it out and we made it available and and made it easy to to connect with and uh, so I think and that is exactly in line with our purpose and our strategy and it kind of fits with the Lumino digital health platform that we've been building so I think for tech investments you know the the first filter that we look at is does it help accelerate our core business does it help deliver on the purpose of the company and and I think you'd say in the case of dialogue and the case of Maxwell it, it ticks those boxes so I'll stop there thank you Your next question comes from the line of Doug Young with Desjardins Capital Markets. Good morning. I, I guess this is probably for Kevin. Uh, I think, uh, Kevin Morrissey, I think you've had negative mortality experience in the U.S. closed block. I think even if you exclude COVID, you can kind of tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, just, just your thoughts on the trends there, and, and do you need to make adjustments um, to your assumptions and, and I think that's something that you're studying as part of your Q3 assumption review. Any early insights into that potential impact from that review? Thanks for the question, Doug. This is Kevin Morrissey. Yes, you've, you've noted correctly that the U.S. mortality experience uh, was negative in the quarter in the U.S. enforced block of life insurance business. And it has had a bit of a negative trend over several consecutive quarters. So as we're looking to the update in Q3 in terms of assumption, I think that's one of the areas where we're seeing some, some potential stress in, in terms of strengthening. So I think you're right directionally. And when I look, kind of maybe pull the lens back more broadly on the Q3 ACMA, uh, we're still quite early days and we are seeing some significant positive items as well as significant negative items. And so, uh, it is too early to tell now about the Q3 results in total. If we knew about uh, a large net positive or net negatives, we would disclose it, but uh, uh, we're, we're not at that point yet to be able to, to uh, have a clear view on, on the overall net impact. And can you outline what some of the positives would be? Like, like some mortality in the U.S. is a negative. What would be some of the positive items that you'd be thinking about? Doug, it's Dean. I think it's too early to talk about Q3 ACMA, so I'm going to let Kevin off the hook on that one. I, I, um, we'll have a full, full discourse of that as part of our Q3 earnings. Fair point. Um, and then maybe to yourself, Dean, uh, Sun Life uh, Investment Management um, had $30 million of earnings, $12 million in Q1. Uh, you know, when, when I look back at the 2016 Investor Day, um, looks like you've hit the targets on AUM. Looks like you've hit your EPS targets, uh, roughly speaking, um, at least you're on trajectory to do so. So what's next for this this business? It's been an area, I know, when, when we think of M&A, and a lot of people think of M&A, think, we think Asia, uh, we think U.S. group, but also I think this has been an area that, in technology, but this has been an area you've been active. Uh, what's next for this this business? Doug, it's Dean. Thank you for the question. And I'm going to ask Steve Peacher, uh, who's president of SLC, to comment on that. But I would, I, I, before Steve speaks, I would just say that we're very pleased with the progress here. You're right to point out that we've gone from, you know, zero to $100 billion of AUM in a relatively short period of time. And we're starting to see some meaningful net income come from the business. Now, we've allocated a lot of capital here, so we need to see that income grow uh, to generate the kind of 
ROEs that we expect on that allocation of capital over the fullness of time. So with that, I'll turn that over to Steve to give you a little more color on, on how we think about the future. Yeah, uh, thanks, Dean, and thanks, Doug, for the question. Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm really pleased with, as you point out today, with the acquisitions and the organic initiatives we've had, we, we've built a pretty broad platform today across real estate and fixed income and private credit and now infrastructure with infrared. And, and I think in terms of the future, our, 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 uh, what's in, what the opportunity that's in front of us is to start to connect dots across that platform. And one of the things that I've been really pleased about in this, during this pandemic is, A, how much new business we're winning, but also the breadth of that business. So if you look at the last few much, months, we've won mandates in, in fixed income, in private credit, in value-add real estate in Europe and Asia. We had our first closing on a U.S. Core Plus real estate fund. Um, and so the breadth is starting to come through. And also, when you look under the covers, we're winning business that no one entity could have won on their own, but we're winning because we're connecting dots across the organization, and I think that's going to be key going forward. I think in terms of future M&A, you know, one of the things I've said in the past is the, the one big area that if we could wave a magic wand, we'd love to add would be in that uh, below investment grade private credit space. Um, and, and, you know, and maybe that will, we will we'll be able to slot that in. But even without that, I think we've, I'm really pleased with the breadth and depth of the platform we have today. Great. Thank you very much. Your next question comes from the line of Paul Holding with CIBC. Thank you. Good morning. So I have a couple more questions on SLC asset management. Um, because of the investments you've made in the last few years, my understanding is a large proportion of the AUM would be in real estate investments. So first, maybe you can provide us some context in terms of what proportion of AUM would be real estate. And then second part of that question, probably the more important one, is how are you thinking about risks in the real estate market today as it pertains to both SLC and, I guess, on balance sheet um, direct investments as well, and maybe the potential for AUM outflows um, out of that product category? Yeah. Uh, hi, it's Steve. Peter, I'll take the first part of that, and, and, and um, on, as it relates to real estate on the balance sheet, uh, Randy Brown may want to uh, also comment. Um, in terms of our AUM related to real estate, I would say today, and I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's probably about a third of SLC's uh, uh, AUM when you think of direct real estate. Now, we also have commercial mortgages, which is real estate related, but of course has more fixed income characteristics given the senior nature of the loans that we make against real estate. Um, you know, in, in a quarter, obviously, you're, you, some of the dynamics you're seeing across the real estate markets, on average, I think, if you look at our third-party port portfolios and our balance sheet, we probably, on average, saw values down 2 to 3%. But when you look under covers, there's a lot there. Obviously, retail assets would be down significantly more. Office assets would depend significantly based on location. Many industrial assets were actually up in, in, in valuation because of the increased demand given the uh, – you know, the uh, online economy that's, that's emerged in this crisis. I think you're seeing cap rates actually start to come down because risk-free rates have come down so much. Risk premiums are widening, but you're seeing cap rates come, come down. So you're seeing a lot of cross-currents in terms of the drivers of real estate values. Um, I think, uh, and, and we are seeing in some of our funds, uh, you know, some redemption activity as people think about reallocations. But I think 
maybe more than that, actually, we're seeing interest in, in allocating to the sector with the idea that there'll be, value, there'll be values in the market going forward. As I mentioned uh, in, the, in response to the last question, we had our, our first close for a new U.S. Core Plus fund that Bentall Green Oak is running in the past quarter, and we've continued to raise significant money in Europe and Asia for our real estate funds there. So, um, uh, you know, I, I actually think we're seeing investors interested in values that may develop uh, as a result of the uh, current market environment. Yep. And Paul, this is uh, Randy Brown. So with respect to the balance sheet, uh, you know, as you saw, we had a, a, a modest write-down in the portfolio for the quarter, uh, largely driven by uh, retail down, um, a couple of idiosyncratic markdowns in office, but broadly office uh, did did fine, but an uptick in industrial, as Steve said, in terms of value. As I think about real estate going forward, uh, I actually think there's quite an opportunity there with interest rates, you know, 10-year interest rates at 54 basis points, long rates in Canada uh, even lower. Um, I think that the return opportunity away from fixed income broadly um, is will become even more attractive than it has been in the past. So I think that the jury, uh, there's a lot of talk on real estate and real estate valuations and the future of office and those, those types of discussions, but I'm actually uh, quite optimistic. You, you may get a, a, a minor divot here as you look in, uh, in prices as we look forward, but if you, if you look uh, as a long-term investor as we are, I think it's a great opportunity and aligns quite nicely uh, with what Steve was talking about with the growth of SLC. Color and I'll, uh, I'll leave it there. Your next question comes from the line of Tom McKinnon with BMO Capital. Yeah, thanks very much. Morning. Um, uh, the expected profit, the, my first question is about expected profit growth. Uh, Kevin, you said, uh, you know, it looks to be up nicely uh, in both U.S. employee benefits and in Canada. And you said the driver of it was widespread growth. Um, maybe you can give us a little bit more color because it seems to be uh, the second quarter expected profit seems to be up nicely year over year and running higher than the kind of quarterly run rates we saw in 2019. Um, and to what extent does sort of improving operational leverage uh, help these numbers as well? And then I have a follow-up. Okay. Well, thanks, Tom. I'll, I'll just start, <clears throat> I'll start off by saying that uh, you heard the numbers in my sort of uh, prepared remarks and, and you know, SLC benefited from the addition of BGO, and, and that explains a, a big part of the growth, but we continue to see good flows uh, inside of SLC, and, and Steve just talked about that. Um, I'm going to let um, uh, Jacques talk about the expected profit growth in Canada and Dan talk about the expected profit growth in, in, um, uh, in the U.S., and, and Leo maybe a little bit on, on – I think Leo's probably covered what you've seen anyway, so I think the two key stories there are, are Jacques and Dan. So maybe we'll start with Jacques on Canada expected profit and then go to Dan. Thank you, Kevin, and good morning, Tom. So, yeah, 12% growth in expected profit, uh, Q220 over Q219. And, you know, we're pleased with that, as you can imagine, in terms of absolute number, but we're also pleased because – we're seeing expected profit growth across all of our businesses. It's not the case of one business as a strong locomotive for the rest here. 
we're, we're seeing widespread growth. And by the way, I would point out, Tom, it's the sixth quarter in a row in Canada that expected profit is up either 9% or more. Uh, what's happening is essentially a couple of things. It's, it's driven by business growth. I would say that's about half of it. The other half is uh, strong expense discipline. On the business growth side of things, we have a lot of focus. Uh, we've just talked a few minutes ago about digital investments. I'll give you a, a quick uh, fact here. Ella, our digital coach in Canada, in the first six months of this year has driven an extra $500 million of deposits from our plan members. So, you know, that's obviously good. Our digital assets are helping us win more business. They're helping us grow the business. We've got some of our growth engines we've talked about in Investor Day, whether it's SLGI, Defined Benefit Solution, the uh, what we call the Worksite Advantage with our client solution. All of these are, are really coming on strong and, and helping to grow expected profit. The other side of it is the expense, as I said. We mentioned in 2018 that we made a pretty significant step change in the financial and the management of our expenses. And you're seeing that uh, come true as well. So the, the combination of strong expense discipline and you know, strategic investments in, in, in very important growth areas is uh, definitely uh, helping here. You know, in a way, I would say, Tom, you know, last few years, we've put the, the right building blocks in place to increase the earnings power of the Canadian uh, segment, and that's what you're seeing. And uh, good morning, Tom. It's Dan Fishbein. Uh, just some comments on the U.S. First, a technical uh, comment. Uh, when our biggest sales month of the year is January 1st, especially for our stop-loss business. So those sales uh, show up in new business gains in the first quarter, and then they transition over to expected profit in the second quarter. So we, when we have a big January, you see a big growth in expected profit in the second uh, quarter. But with that said, like Jacques' comments, we are seeing uh, growth in expected profits across all our businesses, uh, except, of course, IFM, which is actually a negative by definition each month, so the results are even a little better than the, than the total would appear. A lot of that is being driven by growth, volume growth in the stop-loss business. Obviously, that business has been, continues to have great growth over the past few years, both in retention of business and in uh, new sales. We're also seeing good growth in the group business. A lot of that is coming from achieving our target pricing margins. Uh, that is starting to make a really big contribution there. And we're also seeing growth uh, in our uh, full scope business. So uh, there is growth across the board in addition to that Q1 to Q2 uh, technical issue. Great, and then in terms of my follow-up question, um, you, the uh, the impact of changes in the fair value of investment properties that's shown uh, on slide 13 to be 55 million pre-tax. Um, now, I, what I believe this to be is it's uh, your commercial real estate investments that are on balance sheet and they back long t uh, tail liabilities and changes in the fair value of these have an immediate impact on earnings. Uh, and then the number you show on that slide is really the impact here as it relates to your non-PAR business. Uh, first of all, do I have that correct? And then secondly, what is the split of this 
uh, between par, what was the decline in the quarter in the fair value? I think you had said it was modest, but what was the fair, and how was that decline split between your par block and your non-par block? Kevin Morrissey, do you want to take that question? Sure, I'll start, and, and uh, maybe Randy, uh, I'll ask you if you have any further questions. So the, the first, where you started, Tom, it was uh, was that the non-par impact? And the answer is yes. Uh, you're asking about you know, whether that's backing the liabilities, and, and that's yes as well. So it is backing that. Um, you know, as far as uh, the, the third part of the question, maybe I'll ask uh, Randy if, if you want to uh, address sure. that one. Yep, I'll take that one. Thank you. Uh, and thanks, Tom, for the question. So the change in the uh, real estate uh, valuation, as Kevin said, uh, um, is backing long-term liabilities. I think really what you, uh, uh, the, the, the heart of your question really gets to the return, uh, which was um, in terms of valuation, we were down approximately uh, a little under 3% in mark-to-market than we had income. Uh, income return to offset that. So if you look at it in total return uh, space, we were actually pretty much unchanged, you know, a, a roughly zero total return because of the income component. Uh, but what you see is the change in valuation. And as I said earlier, that valuation was really driven largely by retail down, industrial up, uh, and a couple of those idiosyncratic buildings uh, in the U.S. in office. So... Um this is a 7.4 billion portfolio, so a 3% decline is over $200 million pre-tax. You show 55 million pre-tax. Is that because then about three quarters of that block would back par? Is that, do I have that right? Tom, it's Kevin Morrissey. Uh, yeah, so if you're thinking about the real estate and, and the, the liabilities, how that's splitting across par and non-par, we'd have a proportionally higher amount in the, the par blocks. And so uh, uh, I, I think directionally you're, you're on the right page there and that the majority would certainly uh, be in, uh, if you're looking at real estate, majority would be in par. And when you're looking at what happened in the quarter, uh, the par impacts would have been larger. That's right. Okay. Thanks for that. And your next question comes from the line of Nigel D'Souza with Veritas Investment. Thank you. Good morning. Um, my first question, I just want to touch on, on credit experience. And I note, noted that in the quarter, looks like the impact from uh, changes in ratings and impairments um, picked up uh, quarter over quarter. So I was wondering on credit experience, could you speak to what the drivers were and how do you see those uh, two components playing out uh, over the coming quarters? Randy, can you uh, address uh, Nigel's question? Sure. Uh, Nigel, uh, Randy Brown, thank you for the question. So what we saw was, uh, as Kevin had mentioned, we took a, uh, a pretty hard look um, in, at the whole portfolio given uh, the impact of COVID and given the, uh, the global shutdown and therefore the economic uh, impact of that. Um, so uh, migration, as you see in the slides, um, was... Um, was uh, post-tax about 60 million uh, with impairments about 24. The impairments were largely um, what I'm gonna call uh, mostly non-COVID related. They were COVID influenced. 
but it was largely the same um, the, the same uh, loans that it had issues prior, uh, continuing in their in their trend. Um, in terms of migration, um, what you saw there was largely uh, the majority were in the sectors that we identify um, in the MDNA, uh, as you would expect, uh, and that ratings migration was really not uh, unexpected. Part of our view has been that the uh, in an economic slowdown, the rating agencies would downgrade further and faster than they have in the past, and uh, we're seeing that materialize. Um, and we and we did that, as I said, a pretty hard look through the quarter. Uh, okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, just Kevin. I just might just even stress that we we took a really hard look at. Uh, all the sectors that we thought were most impacted, and then we, we continued to review other sectors as well. So there was uh, uh, Randy and his team, uh, along with the, uh, the, the credit risk guys and, uh, and the finance team, took a really, really deep dive on the sector and got through way more loans than we would ever typically get through and made more private fixed incomes on, on a given quarter. So they worked, worked really, really hard and really accelerated their reviews. Okay, that's, that's really helpful. And the last question I had uh, was on capital restrictions. And Kevin, you touched on this in your, in your prepared remarks. I know it's early, but do you have any sense on um, when you may get the green light on, on dividend increases and buybacks? And I, I can understand that you may not be able to answer that in terms of, of timing, but uh, maybe in, in relation to banks and non-banks uh, financials. And, and the reason I ask that is because it appears that you're better positioned on, on capital, balance sheet, credit risk exposures and, and your earning stability. So do you see OSFI lifting restrictions for you and other insurers ahead of other financials, or uh, do you expect OSFI when it does move, kind of move across the board and for the entire sector once the risks related to COVID are in the clear? So Nigel, we have a lot of discussions with, with OSFI and uh, uh, they haven't given any, any indication yet of what they might do in terms of lifting the restrictions on either the, the buyback or the dividends. I do know that they look at the insurance industry separately from the banking industry, as you're noting. And we have uh, sessions with um, uh, myself and, and Colm and, and Kevin with the CFO, C CRO, and uh, chief actuaries from the other companies with OSFI. It's something we, you know, we continue to, to stress our, our strong capital position, certainly at uh, we, we stress ours and they stress theirs, our strong capital position and where we're at. So it's, uh, but they haven't given any indication in terms of uh, what the timing might be. All right, appreciate the caller. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Scott Chan with Canaccord Genuity. Uh, good morning. Um, just on the URR, um, your competitors have offered some guidance on timing and, and a potential range, and I was wondering if you could update uh, us on that if you can. Uh, Kevin Morrissey, do you want to give an update on the URR? Yes, thanks for the question, Scott. This is Kevin Morrissey. So as you've probably heard, uh, the, the actual standards boards uh, is going to be reviewing the uh, URR. So the ASB review and analysis is not done yet. So I don't know if a change will be made. But if a change is made by the ASB, it would be promulgated next year, and we would make our update at that time. As a reminder, the last URR change was in 2019, where the URR decreased by 15 basis points. About $93 million after-tax loss. Great, that's helpful. And just lastly, maybe on MFS, Mike, uh, 
Uh, I guess similar to Steve's question, but just on the retail side, the gross sales have really picked up the last two quarters, uh, the 25 to 26 billion range versus the 17 run rate. Um, is some of the same factors that you talked about in the institutional relate to retailers or something in the industry or the retail industry that is driving that? Yeah, I think it's a little bit different, um, Scott, on the retail side, and that is what we're seeing is um, providers consolidating their list of providers, um, um, our counterparts, and so and, and you can see that when you look at flows in the industry is is uh, the flows and, and active funds continue to be in outflows, but where you are seeing flows as they continue to consolidate into fewer players. And so, you know, we see uh, a number of funds being sold within providers uh, in the marketplace. And so we're benefiting from that. We've seen, really, we've seen that trend accelerate um, through this period of COVID. Uh, and, and we've been expecting this for a number of years, and we would expect it to continue to happen. So, uh, um, you know, the, the, the platforms are consolidating the list of providers. They're consolidating the funds that they use. And firms like MFS are benefiting from that. And uh, I think that's probably the biggest impact year over year. Great. Thank you very much. Your next question comes from the line of Humphrey Lee with Dowling and Partners. Uh, good morning, and thank you for taking my questions. Uh, maybe a question for Kevin. Uh, just thinking about expenses, uh, like we've heard different companies talking about the current environment, uh, you, you do have a little bit of a, a tailwind for expenses uh, from, from a T&E perspective. Uh, but looking at kind of the expenses for this quarter is a little bit of a, a negative uh, variance. Like I'm just wondering um, how you see the expenses kind of uh, in, in this quarter and also as well as the coming quarter, given some of the disruptions and how you think about the expense efficiency. Uh, thanks, Humphrey. So uh, we obviously have a very uh, strong focus on controlling expenses, and we benefit from business group leaders who you've heard earlier who see this as a priority. Um, the, the uptick this quarter really related to, as I mentioned earlier, the group benefits uh, ASO administered services business and just the, the level of claims that has come through and that showed up in the expense line. But, you know, um, we are very focused on expenses. We've, we've got a, we are seeing the tailwind, as you mentioned, from some of the COVID things like travel and conferences, but we're also investing in technology and uh, that, that's absorbed in that rate. But overall, you know, very modest growth in terms of controllable expenses at 2%, which is, in, which is in line with how we're growing the business, right, or even less than. So we see expenses as being, uh, having a lot of potential to support the earnings going forward. Expense to clients. All right. Um, a question for, for Mike, for, for MFS. Um, I guess, like, looking at the, the margin for this quarter, like, normally, I think historically you've talked in the past that, like when you have a kind of positive market that tends to be a tailwind to, to the margin. Just looking at the, the asset growth, uh, looking at the, the equity market performance this quarter, uh, I probably would expect the margin to be a little bit better. Is there like a, a time lag between kind of how the, the margin would improve uh, relative to market conditions and, and, and AUM growth? Hey, good morning, Humphrey. Um, I think there are a couple things. The first is, as you're thinking about the market, um, you know, most people, as they're thinking about the market, like to use the S&P. You know, we've got a, a significant piece of our assets outside of the U.S., and, and markets outside of the U.S. lagged 
fixed income markets obviously did not move with, with the U.S. equity market. So revenues didn't necessarily move with the S&P. That would be the first. Um, if you look year over year, Q2 does tend to be uh, a lower margin quarter because am- amortization of stock compensation, and you tend to see the, the margin expand in the back half of the year, and that's, that's happened year over year for the last number of years. And so I don't think there was anything in the quarter um, that was uh, – um, any different seasonally than what we've seen historically. Uh, again, revenues would have been impacted by the relative market performance um, around the world. Um, expenses were, were relatively in line. And Kevin did call out, I mean, one of the, the one expense line in the quarter, because sales were up so dramatically year over year, we have had some sales-based uh, expensive that, expenses that have been higher that are offset by travel and entertainment, technology, and other expenses. And so um, we have, we've got it in the past in a normal market environment. While this certainly hasn't been normal, but if you look, you know, we had the big decline um, in March, April, big increase um, off of that base. So as you look at the first six months of the year, we've provided guidance of, you know, mid to high 30s is something that we see through a cycle, and we're within that range. And so I don't think there's anything extraordinary uh, that I would call it in the quarter. Okay, got it. Thank you. And we have no further questions at this time. I will turn things to Ms. Chalmers for closing remarks. Uh, Thank you, and I would like to thank all of our participants today. If there are any additional questions, we will be available after the call. call. And should you wish to listen to the recording, it will be available on our website later this afternoon. Thank you, and have a good day. This concludes today's call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.